Hey, what's up, everybody? Chris Trapasso here, CBDSports.com. Today, we are going to discuss what I teased in last episode, but never got to. It was terrible planning on my part. The strengths, and then we're going to talk about the weaknesses in a later podcast, but today, the strengths positionally of the 2021 draft class. And when I say we, of course, I mean that I am joined by my esteemed guest, Matthew Collar. Matt, how's it going today? It is going good. I mean, anytime we can talk about a guy uh, with the name Leatherwood at some point in this podcast, I am excited. I know that that hints at where your strengths of the draft are going, but that is uh, a guy that stands right out because it's like if your name is Leatherwood, you have to succeed in the NFL on the offensive line. So I'm excited about that. That's a blocker's like name, like that, like he is meant to play at at Alabama and probably go in the first round and be a good offensive lineman in the NFL. There's a lot of really cool names in this draft class, and we'll get to a lot of those today. Although I was wrong about Throckmorton, I thought last year that uh, what was it, Caleb Throckmorton? I thought that okay, that's gonna for sure succeed, and you know that hasn't worked out. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, talking about the strengths of this draft, I mean, we've got lots of time to go here, and this could change when we get to the combine and all those things. But as for right now. The tackles are sort of at the top of your list. Why don't you tell me first where you think these strengths are, and then we can kind of break down why they are so strong. So how would you rank the, say, top four positions right now in the 2021 draft? I'll start with quarterback, and we already kind of went in-depth at that position to start. That was just the easy place to begin this podcast. Quarterback, um, wide receiver, and like I said in the, in the second episode that – with how many teams are deploying so many receivers today, they're just bound to be these super deep wide receiver classes every year. So quarterback, wide receiver. After that, offensive tackle and edge rusher, I think, are outstanding. And that is both top-end talents, multiple first-round picks, likely, in my opinion, and second, third, fourth-round guys that we're going to look back on in a couple of years and wonder how they lasted that long and praise the teams that were able to get them later in the draft. And this idea for this episode just came around this time. I've gotten a few tweets. What are the strong positions in this draft class? Some teams that are fans of teams that are already looking ahead to April and maybe just to draft season. So getting uh, some homework done early on these positions, but quarterback, wide receiver, offensive tackle, and edge rusher, I think are outstanding. Uh, And those are really premier positions. You said about it, or you talked about it in the last podcast, that you would rank wide receiver as like the second most valuable spot. I think those are all premier positions. So it's going to be a really, uh, you know, highly sought after draft class in terms of good players, but not like running backs and safeties. We're talking about the premium positions in the NFL. So since we did podcasts on quarterbacks and wide receivers that people could go back and listen to where we went into depth about the top players, and we'll get into uh, you know the deeper players, second, third, fourth rounders at those positions as we go along. But the tackle position is really fascinating to me because I think a lot of people start with 
hey, if you've got an offensive tackle, if you're defending your quarterback's blind side, you're going to be way ahead in the game. And I don't disagree with that. And I think that Carson Wentz would be a good example of a guy who, when he's got the best offensive line in the league a few years ago, or Nick Foles, whoever's playing quarterback for the Eagles, they both look like geniuses. And then when the offensive lines break down, all of a sudden they don't. So that is like an all-time fact about football, is if you have a great offensive line, you're going to succeed. But is there any change in your mind in where you would put the value of tackles versus other positions today? Or would you still have it right behind quarterback wide receiver or neck and neck with wide receiver? I think it's neck and neck with wide receiver. I I do think that those two positions go hand in hand in terms of how much they impact the functionality of an offense that I think if you have a pretty talented quarterback, uh, but you don't have receivers who can get open or can make plays, but have a great offensive line, your offense is going to struggle. And if you have a good quarterback uh, with a bad receiver group and a great offensive line, I mean, either one, I think you're going to struggle on offense with your passing game. So I think those right after quarterback are number two and number three. Do you think wide receiver is number two? I'm, I'm not going to disagree with that because I, I really think they're almost like 2A and 2B in terms of how valuable they are in today's NFL. All right, let's talk about why the tackles are so strong outside of Leatherwood being a guy's name. Uh, but Penny Sewell, I mean, this is the elite of the elite tackle prospects over what, the last five years? Would you put him at, at being among maybe the top or top three in terms of prospects. That's the way he seems to be talked about. I wonder if you think that he deserves that level of hype or if you would say, like, let's kind of wait and see how he performs at the combine. Or is it even hard because we don't have the sample size seeing that he opted out? I think he is truly one of the most elite prospects that we've seen in the last five to ten years. And at any point during the duration of this podcast, if you hear me say generational, that does not mean a generation of the human race. It does not. Mean, <laughs> it's like football generational. And as I mean, we all know anyone listening to this podcast understands how quickly things evolve in the NFL, that two, three years, you can be the coach of the year. You can be the executive of the year. And then a few years later, your whole fan base wants you fired after two bad seasons. So generational is probably, let's say, a 10-year window. So I think Penny Sewell is a generational offensive tackle prospect in that he's six foot six, 340 pounds, so he checks those boxes in terms of size and length. He's extremely powerful. Like, he will not get bull rush, and in the run game, he will demolish any defensive end. He's already NFL strong. And then he moves like he's a center. He moves like Garrett Bradbury, to, to use a Vikings example. He like It doesn't make sense seeing someone that big move as quickly, firing off the ball, and then sustaining his speed in the run game to the second level, in pass protection when he's dealing with his speed rush. He really checks all the boxes. He's kind of the Trevor Lawrence of offensive tackle prospects that we'll have plenty of time to talk about both Sewell and Lawrence But that's kind of the quick scouting report, and I really think all the high praise for him is well-deserved. 
So this just, even if Lawrence had not played this year, it wouldn't have affected him. Uh, and nothing he did could have affected him. Same way for Sewell, where him not playing just doesn't make any bit of a difference. Are are you thinking top five with him? I mean, because who knows what the draft order is. But if you're talking about somebody like Cincinnati, who already has their quarterback, or, well, <laughs> You know, Houston, they love to trade away their first-round picks, so I guess they don't count. But, you know, te- teams, uh, right, I mean, as if they couldn't use maybe another uh, somebody to help out Deshaun Watson. But, you know, teams that might not be drafting a quarterback that are in the top five to seven, uh, he seems like if we're taking quarterbacks out of the mix, he's going to be one of the top three non-quarterbacks taken. Yeah, I think he's a top-five pick, and I think you talked about the combine. Based on what he's shown on the field – I think he is going to test through the roof. I mean, it might not be like the most explosive combine in history because he is going to be like 6'5-ish and around 330 or 340 pounds. But relative to that size and height ratio, I think he's going to be fantastic. I mean, Tristan Wirfs, who's been outstanding at right tackle for the Buccaneers this year, had one of the best combines that we've seen at the offensive tackle spot. Some of his scores weren't like there have been – offensive linemen that have jumped higher than him or had a faster three comb, but when you're factoring in the size, it was fantastic. I think that's the type of combine Penny Sewell is going to have. And he's super young. He played as a true freshman and then a true sophomore, two full seasons, gave up like a handful of pressures for Justin Herbert over the past two years, uh, was not a liability, was actually really an asset in the run game as well. So this is not some redshirt senior that was dominating 19-year-olds when he was 23. He has a really bright future. And I think, yeah, the Cincinnati Bengals, if they're picking three or four, it would make all the sense in the world for them to pick Penny Sewell. When you look at the rest of this class, of course, it's Sewell and everybody else. How do you think it compares in terms of strength to last year where we saw a bunch of tackles taken in the first round, and justifiably so. Even Andrew Thomas seems like he's starting to turn a corner, which we may get to a little bit later. And you're seeing, like you said, Tristan Wirfs play extremely well. Uh, A lot of these rookies have stepped in. Mekhi Becton has looked mostly fantastic for a very sorry New York Jets team, but he looks like a potential superstar. So are we talking about the same type of strength of a draft where we're going to see four or five guys taking the first round the tackle position. Yeah, there were six taken last year. What's funny is that you're right. All, all those players picked in the top half of the first round have been fantastic. And then the Titans picked uh, Georgia offensive tackle on the other side from Andrew Thomas, Isaiah Wilson. He's like barely been on the field. I don't think he's played yet, which it's weird because they lost Taylor Decker or Taylor Lewan, and then Isaiah Wilson's healthy and he's just not playing. So that was strange. But five of the six have looked really good. I don't think it's quite as good of a class. It's similar to the wide receiver group. I think both the wide receiver and the offensive tackle groups are very good in 2021 and just like a notch behind how good they were in 2020. But we could see four to six offensive tackles go off the board. I mean, we'll talk a lot about team fits once things kind of crystallize a little more in the offseason. Um, But I think there's a lot of teams that need offensive tackles with this young wave of quarterbacks. There's going to be a lot of teams, like we already said, the Bengals, the Chargers, a lot of young teams that are going to want to get that blindside protector or even a right tackle. And I think there are three to five, maybe more players who will ultimately, after the combine, after their season is over, be worthy of being a first round pick. 
Okay, so I want you to take me through some, but first tell me what you think of Rashawn Slater. Uh, he was from Northwestern, decided to opt out, and it's a good Northwestern team. They could have used a tackle, though, on their offense. I mean, wow, their defense got to where they are, but their offense is kind of miserable to watch. But, again, with an opt-out type of situation, um, I think with Sewell it doesn't make it that hard to figure out, but with Slater maybe it does. So is he a guy that you have? Have right behind Sewell, or do you think it's going to hurt him that he opted out? Well, I think yes and no. I I think that it's hurt him that he opted out. I think he really could have elevated his stock, and there is going to be a little bit more mystery surrounding him. That, like you said, Trevor Lawrence, Penny Sewell, they could have opted out. They still would have gone in the top five. Rashawn Slater had such a good 2019 season. He played guard in the past, played left tackle for Northwestern was fantastic and reminded me a lot of Jonah Williams at Alabama in that he's not anything like Penny Sewell. He's not 6'6", 340. He's a little shorter. The arms aren't going to measure as long at the combine, um, but so technically sound with his hands, his footwork. He reacts to counter moves to the inside very well, uh, very mobile in the run game. He's not someone that's going to be pancaking guys and driving them into the dirt, but just moving people in the run game and famously, I mean, I guess there's, there's nothing that really quantifies this, but he was the guy that a lot of draft Twitter, including myself agreed, did the best job against Chase Young last season. Ohio state won that game kind of running away, but you just kept seeing Chase Young get blocked. You're like, who is this left tackle? Because no one else in the Big Ten could really block Chase Young with any regularity last season. But Rashawn Slater did a fantastic job against someone in Chase Young that is a freak of an athlete. He's long. He's athletic. The pass rushing moves are there. There will be probably some teams. They'll get leaked out that he might be a guard at the next level. Some teams may not like that. Some teams may like that versatility. But right now, Rashawn Slater is my number two. The combine will be big for him, though, because we, we're not seeing him. And we want to see if you're smaller and your arms are shorter, you need to be a high-level athlete to be, a, say, a top 15 or a top 20 pick. But I think his tape after Penny Sewell is the best of any of these offensive tackles. I think when you start hearing the top tackle prospects might actually be a guard, that's somebody trying to tell somebody – I want that guy. I hope he drops in the draft because we want him as a tackle. That's uh, usually what's going on there. I mean, Isaiah Wynn was this way, and uh, I think, you know, outside of injuries, he's turned out to be pretty good. And, and too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's right. Going back a few years, same sort of thing. I remember on draft night, Mel Kuyper saying about Cordy Glenn, well, you know, there's this big debate. And then he turned out for a few years to be a very good tackle in the NFL. Um, yep. So uh, let me just ask you a philosophical question. You can get to a couple of different names. I have kind of a theory on tackles, which is if you are the technically sound guy coming out, that that's the scouting report, that gives you a much higher chance than this guy's a freak. Now, put Mekhi Becton aside, that's a different kind of freak. That's like yes. an all-time Jonathan Ogden-level freak. So even yes. if he struggles to some extent with technique, he's still going to be good, and if he gets the technique, he's going to be great. So if it's not that guy, that's kind of how I look at it in terms of we're trying to put percentages on what chance there are for somebody to succeed. I like when I hear he's got the footwork, he's got the technique, he's working with this guy or that guy expert who is training him in the offseason. I like to hear that sort of stuff. I think there's always a better chance for that guy to succeed. Yeah, no, that's a good point. I think 
it's easy to fall in love with the measurables and the athleticism, but I think a lot of those busts uh, at the offensive tackle spot, first, second round, the one that pops into my head right now, uh, Greg Little, who went to Ole Miss, was picked by the Panthers in the second round a few years ago. He hasn't necessarily played that well early in his career. His film wasn't very good. He he like looked like a number one overall pick when he was like a freshman or sophomore at Ole Miss, but like you never saw him improve. And by his final season, it he was still a project. And you're like scouts fell in love with all those measurables and the athleticism. I much more gravitate toward the Rashawn Slaters, the Jonah Williams types um, that are so fundamentally sound. And I have a weird theory too. It's kind of a a side theory to this that I almost don't hate when an offensive tackle is smaller and a little shorter. I always think to David Bakhtiari of the Green Bay Packers that he's like one of the shortest offensive tackles in the league. But all that does is lower his center of gravity. And he's not this mauling type that's just – destroying people at the point of attack, but it's so difficult for even these bigger, longer, and stronger defensive ends to push him back into Aaron Rodgers because his center of gravity is so low. I think it does take time for those smaller players like Rashawn Slater or Jonah Williams to get NFL strong where they can just sit sit in that anchor, set that anchor um, where they're not pushed back. But a lot of times these taller, towering six-foot-seven tackles um, that don't have the right weight on them or not enough weight, they're kind of lunging. There's higher center of gravity allows edge rushers to kind of get up and underneath them and win that battle right at the point of attack. So, yeah, we're going to hear Christian Slater as someone that is might be a guard, but like you said, with Isaiah Wynn, some of these smaller players, I almost like that at that position. I don't hate if you're six foot six, but I'm not going to totally disqualify you if you're only six foot three or six foot four. And if you got the arms, the hand size, those types of things, which I know sounds silly, but it actually does matter. I mean, we've seen Garrett Bradbury, you mentioned, is a good example of a guy who has short arms, and it makes a difference. I mean, in his pass protection, that's even a center where you wouldn't think it would. Of course it's going to for a tackle. And when you're saying about the what defensive ends are trying to do to you, what's the big thing, and we'll get to this, I'm sure, that we talk about with defensive ends is bend around the edge. And so if, you know, you're able to you know slow guys down when they're trying to bend around you and get lower than you if you're kind of there um it might be okay for you that might be a strength for you um give me the rest of the list here in terms of guys that you think have a chance to go in the first round all right I'll just segue right off of Rashawn Slater to another offensive tackle that's kind of his type and that's Notre Dame's Liam Eichenberg he's probably not going to test very well I think Slater will test better than him but he kind of reminds me of like a light version of Zach Martin that Zach Martin uh, played tackle. Then pl- obviously has been an all pro guard, like every season with the Cowboys wasn't a freak athlete, but the technical stuff was perfectly sound. Once he got to the NFL, he's a probably a better run blocker than he is a pass protector, but he's played a lot. Uh, very experienced at Notre Dame. He's having a great final season. I think if a team likes Rashawn Slater, but can't get him Liam Eichenberg, Maybe late first, early second. Uh, I think he'll be on that team or those teams' radar, the teams that can't pick Rashawn Slater. And then there's a bunch of uh, longer, freaky guys that I think their film is pretty good in that if they finish the season strong, have a good 
combine that they could also go in the first round. We talked about your guy, Alex Leatherwood, uh, looks the part, was a five-star recruit, one of the top recruits uh, in the nation a few, a few years ago at Alabama. Film's not great this season. He played right guard and he's played left tackle the last two seasons, but there are stretches where he just dominates. He glides in pass protection, has very long arms, and like you said, that certainly helps him at times that he's the first one making contact to kind of control the edge rushers. Similar player, Clemson's Jackson Carmen. He's kind of in that Penne Sewell range, and he's like 6'7", 345, most powerful blocker in the class. Uh, film is not as, as good. He lunges. He's not super patient. His footwork needs to get cleaned up. But if there is a team or a coaching staff or an offensive line coach that really wants that project and says, hey, this could be a Jonathan Ogden type in two or three years, Jackson Carmen might be that player. Um, and then two that I think are the most well-rounded um, after Penny Sewell and Rashawn Slater, Samuel Cosme from Texas and uh, Virginia Tech, Christian Dyersoff from Virginia Tech. Sorry, I'm just reading off a list here. In that they are both pretty fundamentally sound with their feet, their pass protection. They keep their hands inside, not a lot of holding penalties. They glide in their kick set, uh, in their kick slides very well. And they're good in the run game too. They get out and not only win in the run game uh, with power, but also with angles and leverage. Christian Dyersaw's film last year, I didn't think was very good, but he's been a lot better on kind of a average Virginia Tech team, but both he and Samuel Cosme, who has all the athleticism in the world and has gotten stronger this season, those are the two that are like fringe first-rounders right now that I wouldn't be surprised if they have very good combines in Indianapolis and end up getting picked by a contending team somewhere in the 20s or early 30s next year. How do you weigh the run-blocking ability of tackles? Because I think that there would be a natural tendency to kind of throw it out, but... I think it tells you something about the guy. Like when you see somebody who's violent in the run game, like, okay, that says something about his toughness, which is a huge deal when you're talking about offensive line. Um, you know, you might have to sell toughness on other positions to people, but offensive line, no one's going to question, do you need to be tough up there? And when you see finishing blocks, when you see getting leverage, when you see even just like the technical ability, how much do you care about the technical ability? Part of that, uh, I know usually offensive linemen say they love to run block, but is it more than just, hey, push back the guy in front of you to uh, an offensive lineman coming out of the college level? Or is there going to be a lot of work? Because, you know, I think that the run games are getting more complex in the NFL, especially when you look at the teams that are good at it, like San Francisco. There's going to be a lot going on there. If you're a tackle, you might end up pulling. You might end up, you know, doing a lot of different stuff. So, um I think there's a tendency to lean really heavily on the pass pro. Of course, that's more valuable, but I think that you can kind of gain hints from how someone run blocks. Yeah, that's a really good point. And it's kind of what I try to take from it that I always want to see, especially an offensive tackle that is better in pass protection, obviously, like than he is in the run game. Like if he's just demolishing people in the run game, but just can't pass protect, then you, you kind of almost push him down to the back of the draft. But what to the point that you made, which I think was a great one, someone like Rashawn Slater, you can glean a lot from how he's going to pass protect by watching him as a run blocker. Is he just a straight-ahead bull that just tries to overpower people? 
And then if there's someone that can shed his block, is he falling to the ground? Or, like Rashawn Slater, is he awesome with his angles, uh, resetting his hands, resetting his feet, combo blocking, very efficient. Those are the types of players that then you watch them on third and long, and they're usually kind of implementing a lot of those same fundamentals in pass protection. So that's almost to the point where I, gotten where I, I was kind of leaning toward – I don't even care about run blocking. I don't care. But in <laughs> yep. the past couple of seasons, and really Jonah Williams was the guy for me that really turned me on to that, that Alabama wanted to run the football a lot during Jonah Williams' career, especially early on. And you would see how great of a combo blocker he was, how great he down blocked and then would get to the second level to those linebackers. And that when someone was trying to shed his block, when they were either two gapping or just trying to get between him and the guard, that he was able to reset his hands and reshuffle his feet and get in front of that defensive lineman. You want to see, to me, I want to see more fundamentals in pass protection and in the run game because I think almost every offensive tackle needs to get stronger once he gets to the NFL. So I don't care if you have a highlight film where you're pancaking defensive tackles. You're not going to do that in the NFL. You need to win. I think it's almost more of a finesse position than it is a power position once you get to the NFL with how refined these pass rushers are. And it's not just edge rushers. It's guys inside, too. So this really goes for all offensive linemen. So gleaning how fundamentally sound and how technically savvy a offensive tackle is as a run blocker, I think, translates to those passing situations very well. And when they get to the NFL – they're going to change a lot about how someone pass protects, especially depending on where they came from. If you come from, you know, I don't know, Oregon or something like, yeah, or Big 12, you're going to see a lot of changes that you have to make in order to face Vaughn Miller or Khalil Mack. <laughs> like, it's just a totally different ball game. But a lot of the run stuff in terms of technique will transfer. I mean, if you're a zone running team in college, it's a lot of the same sort of teaching points, and you get, you know, those – can kind of pass over to the NFL. So there's a little more, I think, that you can take from that element. So the other one that you had, the other position that you had in terms of your top four in strength was the edge rushers. I don't see a uh, Chase Young in this draft, but it seems like there's a lot of next tier. Like Chase Young would have been your, uh, as you said, your generational guy that is going to be hard to come across in any of the next few drafts, but that there is sort of a, a really good race that's going to go on between five or six guys. So why don't you lay that one out for me? Yeah, there's definitely not a consensus. And there had been like the last five or six drafts. It was like Bradley Chubb, the Bosa's, like those were these all right, they're going to be the first edge rusher off the board type of prospects, and then everyone was playing for second. We don't have that this year. I think there's going to be uh, six to seven edge rushers picked between, like, selection 10 and, like, pick 35 or 40. So, like, maybe only three or four go in the first round. There was only two last year with Chase Young and Caleb on Chase on. Uh, I think we'll see more than that. It's a deeper group. But it's interesting, though, that there really is not a consensus. I think most people listening to this podcast have heard the name Gregory Rousseau, Miami. He opted out. He's six foot seven, two sixty five. I mean, he's built in a lab. If you were creating a player in Madden, all all those cliches, <laughs> you would be building Gregory Rousseau because he's super long. He had fifteen and a half sacks as a true freshman. It wasn't the most kosher fifteen and a half sacks. Like there are a lot of stunts, a lot of coverage sacks. Uh, I don't think he's great with his hands yet, 
but he's young and he has all the measurements that you want from an edge rusher who can really play anywhere up and down the line. What's interesting about this group, and I'll kind of stay with the groups like I did with the offensive tackles, along with Gregory Rousseau, I'll just run through these quick because there's so many. There are a bunch of other freaks that I think, I'm not going to say these are all going to set new records uh, at the combine, but Michigan's Quiddy Pay was number one on Bruce Feldman's freak list, this annual list that comes out uh, right before the college football season of the most athletic players in college. Quiddy Pay was number one. Past players have been like Tristan Wirfs, uh, Saquon Barkley, Miles Garrett. So that's the type of player or athlete you're dealing with when you're talking about Quiddy Pay. And I think his hand use has gotten better this year. Miami's Jalen Phillips. Uh, it would have been fun to see Jalen Phillips and Gregory Rousseau on that Hurricanes defensive line together because Jalen Phillips was the former number one recruit in the entire nation, regardless of position, went to UCLA, had a couple concussions, retired from football, decided to come back, transferred to Miami. He's been unstoppable this year. He's 6'5", like 255, 260, just looks like an NFL outside linebacker. And I recently wrote up this entire edge rusher position just because I was just fascinated by how deep it was. And I wrote it as best traits and weaknesses. And really with Phillips, there's not a clear cut weakness to his game. He uses his hands well. He can bend. He's explosive. Uh, So he's someone that's kind of flying under the radar right now that I could see having a great combine after a really good singular season at Miami and flying up draft boards later. Wake Forest, Carlos Basham, another one. He's like 285, like 6'5", 285 playing on the edge, which is insane. Can bump inside. A little more inconsistent, but a freaky athlete. Uh, I'll go with two more. Cincinnati's MyJ Sanders. Uh, that program's obviously really been on the rise this season under Luke Fickle. Uh, it will be fun to see them in the college football playoff just to see how they stack up so we don't have the same three or four teams like we do every year uh, in the college football playoff. But he's another one, 6'5", 260. Uh, burst, bend, pass rushing moves are a little uh, hard to come by for him at this point, but I think he's going to jump through the roof. He's going to test very well at the combine. And one last player, Penn State's Jason Owe. He was, I believe, number four on Bruce Feldman's freak list. Uh, Supposedly can run like a 6.3 time in the three-cone drill, which would be – or a a 4.3 – uh, 40-yard dash as well, which would just be ridiculous. If you ran 6-3 in the three-cone and ran somewhere in the 4-3s or 4-5 as a defensive end, that would be unbelievable. Uh, the pass rusher moves aren't there, but he's a freaky athlete. So to have that many early on, just as an introduction, these players that are the built-in-the-lab burst-and-bend players uh, is really fascinating to me because I could see a few of those being value picks third or fourth round or two or three of them being the first off or the first edge rusher off the board in April. So it'll be interesting to see if it is Gregory Russo, who's kind of been penciled in as that number one guy, or if one of the players I just talked about uh, will ultimately be that first edge rusher off the board. Um, are you sure uh, that he's not playing corner at a, a four three? Uh, yeah, it, it seemed a little. It seemed a little bit much. And Bruce Feldman, obviously of the Athletic, is one of the most respected college football reporters out there. But I'm pretty sure it was like, oh, he was tested at six point three one and in the low in the mid four threes at two hundred and fifty pounds. I was like, what the hell? Like this is like wide. Rec- <laughs> why is he not playing wide receiver or tight end? Like that was 
a little strange. So we'll see what happens with him, but he is one that I think is a dark horse but could go in the first round just because he's that athletic. What do you think about the difference in size? Um, because, you know, it, it, certainly the edge rusher position is not one size fits all when it comes to the NFL. And you mentioned uh, Basham and just, you know, when you have some guys who are in the 270s, 280s, Zadarius Smith is a guy who is just hulking and has a lot of weight and power to him and he succeeds. But then you also have the, the freaky guys coming speed off the edge that only weigh 250 pounds. The uh, Javon curse prototypes. I feel like he was the one that sort of broke through with you can be taller and skinnier and, and still dominate at this position. So when it comes to the freaks, you have the guys who are a little on the lighter side, but super fast. And then you also have the powerful side. Is that just, do you think teams will just look at that as kind of who fits for what they want to do best? Or do you see a correlation between either one of those kind of being trendy these days? I don't know if it's trendy. I think to your first point, uh, it's probably just what your defensive scheme calls for or what your defensive coordinator wants. Uh, with someone like Zedarius Smith or even his teammate Preston Smith, if you're in a defense where they truly want you to play like multiple positions and play on the edge and then like on third and long or second and long play inside, then yeah, someone like Carlos Basham, Quiddy Pay, who's listed close to 280, you're going to say, all right, you're maybe not the greatest edge rusher in history, but you can also win on the inside. And then some teams are like, no, you are an edge rusher. We want you rushing from seven or nine technique and way split out wide. We want, we want you to be a little smaller. We don't care if you're 200, if you're only 245 or, or 250. Uh, so I, I don't think that it's trendy. I do think, though, and I want to hear what you think about this, it does seem like more teams are kind of – maybe leaning toward these more versatile players where they're not just saying you are an edge rusher only, but I haven't seen it enough evidence to say that uh, it would be really categorized as a trend, but I tend to like the players that can bump inside and can win against guards and centers too. I agree, and I also think what's old is new. Uh, when you and I were growing up, defensive ends weighed 285 pounds, and if you didn't, um, they were gonna, you know, put you back at linebacker or something like that. And now, you know, they are lighter. But I also see more teams using multiple tight ends. I see more teams bringing the fullback you know, back into the mix, not just San Francisco and Minnesota and uh, Baltimore, but there are other teams that are starting to load up on bigger personnel and who are getting creative in the run game to the point where if you can't effectively set the edge as a defensive end, they're just going to take advantage of you all day. And I think there's some of that with how people have gone against Green Bay. I mean, Zedaria Smith obviously is all over the field, but Preston Smith is kind of the classic, not that great run stuffer type of guy on the edge. And a lot of the big plays are kind of coming in that area from running games. And I, and I don't think that at any point we're going to see teams stop running like you know some analytics people want them to do. They're still going to run 40% of the time. And if you're getting creative, you're running jet sweeps. We see that quite a bit. Um, so I think you need uh, guys on the edge who are able to you know, push a tackle back or set the edge or whatever you need. I, I think that's effective. It's not that you can't work around a guy who weighs 250, but it might be a tiebreaker if you have guys that you like equally and one's got a little more power to his game. Yeah, and I think along with that, if mostly those bigger, heavier, stronger players are also the ones that can kick inside too. So that's why I kind of lean toward those types that I, I favor them a little bit more. I think just watching them, I always think back to, and he's had a pretty good second season. It wasn't great as a rookie. Cleland Furl, 
who surprisingly went in the top five two years ago, writing him up over and over again during his career at Clemson and then during the pre-draft process, I just kept saying, this is a three-down defensive end in that he's probably never going to have 15 sacks. He's never going to lead the league in pressures, but he's probably going to be a pretty good pass rusher, and he's going to set the edge well. He's going to get off blocks. Um, when there is a tight end out there, he's going to throw him aside and make plays in the run game. And I, I think that's kind of why Mike Mayock picked him in that there were some other players. There's Montez Sweat in that draft class as well. Josh Allen uh, of the Jaguars that were probably better, just pure pass rushers. And I do want to value that more. And I do um, in my scouting uh, like entire grading system, but I do still have kind of a, maybe it's just like an old love for these players from maybe watching them growing up players that don't have to come off the field and they are scheme versatile and they're position versatile as well. So I think maybe there is kind of a trend or, or, or maybe it's just how I kind of favor those type of edge rushers. Cause I, for as much as I think you can get great production and output from a six two, 240 pound guy that's super explosive and uses his hands. Well, he's probably going to have to come off the field. Like you're saying, there's still 40% of the time teams are uh, running the football. One thing that the uh, Vikings defensive coordinator, Andre Patterson, who also coaches their D-line and is the cream of the crop in terms of D-line coaches in the NFL, uh, he pointed out that, hey, if you get 10 sacks, that means you made 10 great plays out of 450 times that you were on the field. So what happened the other 440 times? You know, were you able to push your guy back? Were you able to bat a pass down or get in a passing lane? Were you able to shut down a run? Because, yeah, I mean, the, the sacks and those kind of go up and down, but it is hugely important that you're playing the entire game. Otherwise, like you said, I mean, if you are a 700-snap player as opposed to a 1,000-snap player – I think there's a big difference in that and what your value is going to be overall to your team and whether you should be the top 10 pick, the top 30, the top 40. I think that those should make a difference. Yeah, and this kind of just reminds me of what we talked about on the previous podcast that, like, there's this big push for, like, running backs don't matter and just, like, fill your team with undrafted players. And I don't think that's – I think that's going too far. I think you still once in a while need to draft a running back in the second to fourth round and get good four years – out of him and then let him walk. Don't pay him. It's the same thing with defensive linemen. Like we want to say pass rush matters most and it does. But if you're a sub package player, that's awesome as a pass rusher, but you're a liability against the run and you're only playing, like you said, four, five, six, seven hundred snaps as opposed to a Cleveland furl that's on the field, 75 snaps a game now with how much offense we're seeing. You're just not as valuable overall to your team. That, that, smaller player might have 12 sacks and and make a pro bowl, but he's not making as big of an impact every game, every quarter, like a three down defensive end is. Right. Uh, So before we get to extra points here, did you have uh, any other players that you thought that you didn't name that you thought have a good chance to be in the first round? Yeah, there's two guys, same team uh, from Pittsburgh, Rashad Weaver, who currently leads the nation in quarterback pressures with 48 and his teammate, Patrick Jones. And they're both very well-rounded. With Rashad Weaver, you get someone that is powerful. He's big. He's 6'5", 270. You see the pop in his hands. His bull rush is good. He's kind of the traditional player at that size. But then when you watch his film, it's fascinating. He can dip and bend the edge. Like, he lowers his shoulder and dips around the edge like he's a 6'2", 240-pound player. 
He's not a fantastic athlete. You see that he's like one of the last players off the ball, so that might push him down a little bit. But the pass rushing moves are there. The power is there. The length, and then that dip move, I think is kind of his trump card that could push him into the back portion of the first round. And with Patrick Jones, you kind of get the opposite in that he is full bore straight ahead, explosive, explosive athlete. He's also listed at around 6'5", 265 pounds, so he's pretty big. He looks kind of thin in his lower half. I feel like he could add some more weight um, to his frame because he is pretty tall. Pretty good with his hands, not quite as good as Rashad Weaver. Doesn't have as many moves that he can rely on and win with. Uh, But his bend and his burst uh, is tremendous. I think it's of first-round quality. He's right up there. He has a few less pressures than Rashad Weaver. But those two players, Pitt hasn't really been that great this season, and Rashad Weaver was coming off an ACL last year, so there wasn't a lot of buzz for him. But they've both been very productive when they've been on the field. They have good size, and they're – Beyond their traits, I think they've been well-coached. They have a pass-rushing plan when they're attacking offensive tackles. Just real quick before I ask you the extra point question, um, I think we need to invent a game right before the combine where we gamble on how close guys' heights and weights are to what they really are. We absolutely need to do that, especially (laughs) with offensive linemen, with edge rushers, defensive linemen. You see – Six, seven guys go down to six, four and a half, like on a regular basis. So we need to probably dedicate one, if not two, maybe we'll go offense, defense episodes to let's guess, like look up ridiculous heights and weights based on what we see on film as compared to what it's listed on the uh, school's website and then see where they ultimately end up in Indy. Absolutely. I have stood next to the uh, weigh-in thing in the locker room and seen players, you know, come up and weigh, took a peek at what they actually weigh. I'm like, oh, that's not what it says on the website, you know, and and that usually goes off of their combine, which they drank a bunch of water and, you know, put pennies in the pockets or whatever to try to try and get their weight up. And even still, you know, because when you said 265, I was like, oh, is that what it's going to be? Probably not, right? So, um, that yeah, that'll just write that one down. That'll be a fun game. Now, let me ask you for the extra point question, uh, Chris. The New York Giants draft class is starting to turn a corner here, I think, as we've gone along in the season. And, you know, Andrew Thomas starting to play better after a really rough start. And this speaks to how hard it is to be an NFL tackle. It also speaks to how much teams want to change technique and how – mastering new technique with no training camp or a shortened training camp and no OTAs and no mini camp is really, really hard. But with him starting to look pretty legit, um, all of a sudden their draft class falls into place and looks like uh, it could be a home run. I'm really interested to see Xavier McKinney too and kind of how he fits into the mix. And then the other guys that they've drafted have turned out pretty well. So right now, I'm not going to ask you to rank all of them, but would you put the Giants in the upper tier of how the 2020 draft has fallen uh, this season? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that has that would have been a different answer like two or three weeks ago before Andrew Thomas really turned the corner from week five until week 11. He had the most pressures allowed of any offensive lineman in the NFL, regardless of position. So that's like not a distinction anyone wants. And then when you're a rookie who was picked inside the top five, when there was Tristan Wirfs and Mekhi Becton and Jedrick Wills picked after you, like, 
and your team is not very good, like that is a bad, dark place to be, I'm assuming, as a rookie. The last three games, though, he's not really faced a premier pass rusher, but he's allowed zero pressures. So he's not, he's no longer the league's uh, highest pressures allowed player. And I think you're right that it probably took him at least half the season to learn some new techniques. Georgia's scheme was very run heavy and he was a bulldozer in the run game, moved very well, had a good combine, um, super long. I just think it took him time and it takes a lot of offensive linemen time to be like, wow, every single edge rusher I face has like five moves that in college, they just try to bull rush you into the quarterback. And if you're stronger than them, then you're fine. And, and Andrew Thomas is big, long and strong. But the fact that he's been able to turn a corner, I think that has been a big factor, a big component in the Giants winning their last four games and getting a big win over the Seattle Seahawks. Uh, yes, they are only five and seven, but they look to be the team to beat or uh, the team that, of any of the four in the NFC East that that uh, team in the playoffs is not going to want to play. Like, like it was for the longest time, September, October, it was like, Oh my God, that first or that number five wildcard seed is going to be the most sought after wildcard position in like NFL history. But now and we were talking about this off air that I don't know if the giants are going to be such a super easy out because they've, good on the defensive line, and with Andrew Thomas and another rookie, right tackle Matt Pert, playing a lot better. Uh, And, yes, Daniel Jones can turn the football over a lot, but he can also drop it in the bucket, too, down the field. They're not really going to be that fun of an out uh, in the playoffs if they get there. And I also think that, as weird as it sounds, because we all like to make fun of Dave Gettleman and drafting a running back as high as he did and, you know, doing the computer mock thing with his fingers – their outlook is pretty decent. I mean, if not good with this draft class. And that's all it takes sometimes to turn the corner is just nail it once, and all of a sudden you've got a lot of pieces in place, and what they do at the quarterback position will be really interesting to watch. I I think they'll stay with Daniel Jones, um, but that'll be fascinating because I think if they do change quarterbacks – it's a great setup for somebody who comes in there with some of the weapons, some of the offensive line that they've built, Saquon Barkley coming back. So it'll be interesting to see them going forward. But definitely, if you are Seattle, do you want to go back there? Like, I don't think so. I, I don't I don't think you do because if they get hot at the right time and then you've got to travel there across the country, you might be in uh, in tough shape. So, yeah, Giants, think- Giants doing well. Who would have thought? I know. It, it didn't seem like there was going to be any team that would even get to five wins in the NFC East like a few weeks ago. Uh, and, you know, the Giants have played a lot better. And I think it's, you know, we're in this spread league where it's just all about your quarterback. And Dave Gettleman's this old school guy that drafts his hog mollies and, and wants to be really good in the trenches. Well, I like what he did in that he drafted three offensive linemen. He was like, well, hey, I'm going to draft three of them, and they're probably not all going to be bad, right? Like Andrew Thomas started badly, played better. Matt Pert was such a fundamentally sound player at UConn, needed to get stronger, but his pass protection was outstanding. Shane Lemieux has not been great, but he's been able to stand in uh, when they've had some injuries at guard. One last player that I want to talk about, uh, Carter Coughlin, the edge rusher. He's come on strong as they've given him some more snaps. After his 2018 season, he had nine and a half sacks, 15 tackles for loss. He was invited to the Von Miller pass rushing summit. Like there was first round buzz for him. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah, Because 
you watch his film and it was kind of what we were talking about earlier. He was this six foot two, 245 pound guy that won with speed, bend, and used his hands very well around the edge. You're like, hey, this is a stand up rush linebacker uh, who, with a strong senior season, could go first or second round. Didn't really play that well in his final season. And we saw at the combine, he wasn't that great of an athlete. The Giants get him later in the draft, and I think they're getting a fundamentally sound player that has maybe just turned it on um, and is playing with a better first step, better quickness, and has packed on some power to his game uh, for a team that kind of lacks that elite pass rusher. Not that I'm saying Carter Coughlin is that, uh, but they have to do it more by the collection of their players on the defensive line. That was a really good get later in the draft. So it's been really in the trenches, of course, for Dave Gettleman that has really sparked the Giants to play a lot better. Yeah, interesting just with draft philosophy. If somebody was a projected first-rounder coming into the season and they're in the fifth, you might as well, right? You know, don't take a long snapper. Take somebody who may have had something there, just had a down year or, you know, whatever else it might be, drop for some other reason. But if they were a five-star recruit or a first-round prospect before and they're in the fourth or the fifth – then you should take them all the time because even if that's a bust, who cares? It's the fifth round. Exactly. All right, that'll do it for us today. This was a positive podcast talking about the strengths. The next episode, we're going to talk about the weak positions in the draft because there's quite a few. We didn't really talk about that many positions that are super strong. There's a few that are like mediocre at this point, but some marquee positions that we've seen very strong over the past couple of years um, that aren't really that great in 2021. For Chris or for Matthew Collar, I'm Chris Trapasso. This was the Prospect Podcast.